Hey everyone, it's Anu, and I want to welcome you back to the Every Rider Has a Story podcast. In this episode, Dale Johnson joins us, and in it he shares with us his journey as a horseman, how he found his way to polo, and how he continues to enjoy the sport both practically and successfully. I really enjoyed taking in Dale's perspective about how we can all empower ourselves in ways that make our dreams possible, and how the barriers to entry in any sport may be high but there are always methodical ways to pursue them. I'm here today with Jill Johnson, and I'm going to let him introduce himself to all of you. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Dale Johnson. Uh, I am a polo player here in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I'm happy to be here today. Yay. I'm super happy to have you here. Uh, the last time we spoke was when you were speaking to students at Detroit Horsepower, and that was such a wonderful talk that you gave all of them, and I know they were really appreciative of it. And I'm just wondering, because I know a little bit about you, but maybe not all of my listeners do. So could you tell everyone how you're kind of involved in the horse world and what sparked your interest in horses? Yeah, absolutely. So horses, like many of us, for me, is, is, is a hobby. It's, it's not what I do full time, although I wish I could. Um, um, on most days, I, I work uh, in operations. I'm a data scientist. Um, largely compiling and engineering data and putting all of that information together um, to serve the needs of different business segments uh, for Visa, uh, Visa Inc., the, the uh, credit card and debit card company. Um, but in my spare time, uh, I do play polo. And so I got involved in polo, I would say, roughly three years ago. And that was the time I actually also started seriously riding. Prior to that, I hadn't ridden anything serious, nothing beyond, you know, trail rides and, you know, maybe a lesson here or there. Um, so I got into polo after uh, a business trip that I had to take uh, when I was working for a financial technology company. Uh, and I took this trip down to Argentina. And in Argentina, the polo culture and also the horse culture, I don't know if a lot of people know this, is, is, is enormous. Um, once you get out of Buenos Aires, the capital, um, when you get into the areas like, like the Pampas and things like that, um, there are, you know, there's a very large cattle culture and it is all centered around horses. And so um, when you're going through the capital, Buenos Aires, um, a lot of the, the shops and things like that, a lot of their gifts are, you know, basically kind of cover this they 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 are all about horses all about leather all those things and so I was in a shop purchasing some some gifts for my mother and I look up at the top of the shelf and I'm and I see this this spectacular pair of of boots and I thought to myself are those polo boots and the the shopkeep is like yeah those are polo boots and I said to myself oh man that's that's that's, those are pretty nice those are slick so um I'm gonna have to get into that when I come back when I come back home so I came back home and kind of just started looking up polo and that's really, really how I got into it. Um, I love horses, um, just like you should. I think anyone who rides horses, I would hope that they would love horses. <laughs> and yeah. uh, and then, of course, I'm pretty athletic. So I thought that polo combined um, a lot of sort of my human athleticism with that of the horse. And um, and of course, there's some, some family horse history, but I'll, I'll stop it there. 
I mean, I would love to hear the family horse history if you're willing to share it. No pressure, though. <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, always happy to share. Um, so the great thing about my family uh, is that we have shared the stories of, of my family's life in the United States um, for my entire life. Um, my mom and dad were, were adamant that I learn the origins of my family, where we've come from, et cetera. And so um, on my dad's side, my grandfather um, is what you, I guess you would consider a black cowboy and not necessarily sort of the cowboys that we see in the cities and things like that. No, he, that it was truly his job. And so when he was born in 1918, he was born on a cattle ranch uh, about 90 miles north of Houston, Texas, um, called High Prairie. And High Prairie was a black settlement. It basically was a settlement founded by newly freed slaves um, because they were segregated from the rest of society. So they thought the best way forward was to kind of build their own townships and things like that. So my family, the Johnson family with another family called the McAdams family founded this, this, this settlement, if you will. And given the fact that there weren't many jobs available or afforded to this group of people, um, they decided, you know, cattle ranching, which, I mean, I would say it's unskilled labor. I mean, we would, would probably refer to that today, but it, it's very skilled. It takes a lot of skills to do it. But then, you know, it wasn't obviously a white collar or blue collar profession. So um, that's what they did because that was kind of the work that they could get. And so my family had this enormous cattle ranch and that's where my grandfather was born. Uh, he moved to the West Coast, to Oakland in particular, um, around the time of the Second World War and he was a veteran. And uh, he brought a lot of those elements and a lot of those um, experiences and ideals and beliefs and things like that to Oakland. And so obviously being the grandson of this guy and the only grandson of this guy, um, then th that's kind of obviously how it trickled down. So horses weren't anything or in horse life or anything like that wasn't anything that was completely foreign to me. It's just that, you know, when you're, when you're a young person growing up in the middle of the city, it's just not as accessible and no one's really going to go out of their way for um, someone to, to go ride horses. Right. So it wasn't until I got older that I kind of came into my own and I decided to, to take it up. Oh, I love that. And thanks for sharing that part of your history with all of us. I love um, how that kind of, I don't know, I think it's really easy to forget that there are multiple cultures and like uh, societies that really value horses and working horses in particular. So I'm really happy to hear you share that. And you spoke a little bit about accessibility. So I'm wondering, because polo is definitely, when I think of polo, I think of it being very expensive and not necessarily the easiest sport to break into. So I'm wondering if you could maybe share where you found, like how you started to break in. And I really want to know like how you developed the fortitude to keep moving forward. Because I can imagine the initial like breaking through of anything is always a little tough. So I'd like to dive into that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So I will, you know, right off the, the top, say that the barriers to entry in polo are very high. And um, whether you're talking about um, logistics, whether you're talking about finances, all of it is high. Um, polo fields, I mean, there's, there's a lot of acreage that's needed. So your polo field's not going to be smack dab in the middle of your city, right? So in Oakland, we can trail ride, you can do a bunch of other things. So obviously, that's attractive to people. But something like polo where you need 
you know, a few football fields of space to, to actually play the sport requires, um, you know, players to drive a fair amount of distance from the city. So the club that I generally play at South Bay Polo um, is in a city called Gilroy, uh, which is probably about 70 miles south, due south of either Oakland or San Francisco, um, which are the two major cities that sit on the bay. So uh, this polo field's about 70 miles. So when we play, um, sometimes on the weekends in the summertime and things like that, so three times a week, I'll be going down there, driving 70 miles one way. And so it's it's going to be about 140 miles round trip. And um, so that that right there is already you're already kind of done when you think about the the distance that it takes to to kind of get into polo here in the Bay Area. And then obviously, you know, you said the cost and sort of um, you think it's very expensive. Yeah. To your point, I think when a lot of folks initially see polo or or become aware of polo, it's either going to see like the Prince of Wales playing. You're going to see something like uh, the the Verve Clicquot Classic. Uh, which shows more people dressed up than actual polo. Um, and, you know, you're going to, you're going to see all of the, or you're going to see like, you know, Ralph Lauren and things like that. So there's all of these things that kind of, I think, put people in the mind that it, it sits in this ivory tower. And so I think when I kind of came into it, um, I kind of knew that it was going to be pretty expensive. Um, so I was prepared. And so I'll give, you know, basically some of the, the, the just the numbers, I mean, because I think that that'll give more clarification for like what it costs to play polo. So, you know, a standard, almost like normal English ride in the Bay Area, like a lesson is going to be just shy of 100 bucks. And then in for polo, um, depending on the club, you know, you're thinking about 150 to 175 per lesson. And so when I first got into polo, um, it was a clinic. So you would basically, it was a package. So if you bought this many lessons for this clinic, then the cost actually dropped down significantly. So I think the, the, the clinic that I took was something like an area of like 1500 bucks. And that was going to be 10 weeks. And one time a week we would be playing. And so when I first started to play and started kind of getting to the clinic, um, I realized that my riding was was abysmal. So I decided, oh man, I gotta, I gotta go out there and, and get some more lessons and things like that. So then I began to supplement that with uh, riding lessons at a place that was closer to my home at the time I was living in San Francisco. Now I'm in Oakland, but there was a stable very close to San Francisco that in a city called Pacifica that I could drive out to fairly easily. And so I started kind of supplementing lessons with that. And then I knew I needed to ride more and more because I mean, the, the cornerstone, like of, like of all the disciplines, but a, a key cornerstone of Polo is horsemanship. Um, and so I, I knew I had to probably ride more than play. So I started to try to find lessons or places where I could ride, in, you know, where I could get a lesson at, at any place I could find. And so that actually ended up, you know, with me just kind of connecting with people, you know, helping out at the ranch uh, down at South Bay Polo. Um, the owner, Francesca Fanato, of that, of that particular club is super nice and generous and always will be open to you helping her out. So whether that's riding sets on her horses, whether that's, um, you know, moving hay, whether that's, you know, just, just doing whatever one can do to, to keep things running. Um, she's open to it. And then in addition to that, just riding like more formalized lessons. And so I found some people and essentially when I first got into polo, I thought, man, I got to get my costs down. So I got, I broke out, I broke out a spreadsheet and I said, okay, if I do this many lessons over this much time, my and if I do lessons here and there and there and there, 
I can bring my average cost down to a certain point. And so what I figured out is like, if you're talking about like most polo lessons were like 175 or 150 and the only premium is they're putting a mallet in your hand. Then I figured, Hey, I'll do a polo lesson, you know, every other week. And then I'll do a riding lesson at, you know, wherever I can find every other week from that. And so I was actually able to find a way to kind of bring my effective, you know, my, my average cost down to about 85 to 95 per lesson. And so not only was I learning to ride, which you would do in a polo lesson anyway, I was learning to play polo. And so I was going back and forth and sort of vacillating between a riding lesson, English riding lesson and a polo lesson and, and all of these things. So I kind of created this whole framework to bring my average cost down in a way that would allow me to play polo and become a better rider. And so that's how I kind of got through the, the accessibility portion of like how I'm going to, to make polo happen. And I say that all of the time and on Instagram and things like, this is how I make polo happen. And so um, I know that, you know, one could easily break the bank playing polo. And I've heard, or I've been told that the shelf life of a, just amateur polo player who get really gets into the sport is about three years. And a lot of that has to do with time and costs. And so the two, if you think about this as an equation, one has to think about, okay, how do I maximize my time? And also how do I, you know, get the most yield out of that time? And then also how do I keep my costs consistent or low? And so I really do enjoy the sport. And so I ask myself those questions every day. How do, how do I make this happen? And so when I first got into the sport, that's what I did. And then when I really realized that I wanted to play more, and when you think about the cost, because like in polo, what we'll do is there are horses afforded to you by the different clubs. And those clubs will basically say, okay, you want to play in two rounds. That's generally the minimum. It's $150 a round. Each round of polo called a chucker is seven minutes and 30, seven minutes, 30 seconds, which means that you're paying $150 for seven minutes. So if you think about, hey, I would love to play every weekend. Well, then, you know, even if I was playing one day a week, that's $300. Then you took the next week, that's $600. You do the next week, that's $900 and then $1,200. And I thought to myself pretty quickly, well, this is going to add up. The only way that I could really do this effectively is if I get a horse because I can't play, can't ride, you know, I can't play and get lessons and become a better player. In addition to that, driving 70 miles each way is, is really difficult. So I had to think to myself, okay, now I've got a, a financial equation and a logistics equation. So then that's basically what I did was I said, okay, well, you know, I'm going to get on the good foot and kind of figure out this horse thing. And I did. It was a bit serendipitous, but I ended up with my horse, Sunny, and she was a polo pony that, you know, um, you know, her and her former owner just didn't gel well. And they needed that horse exercised and, you know, just kind of asking around and trying to figure things out. Sunny and I kind of, you know, it was meant to be, it was written in the stars. She and I kind of came together and, you know, eventually we played and, you know, they wanted to sell this horse and I said, okay, I'll buy her. And when you think about it, when I think about that equation now, the cost now has come down because once you pay your club fees in most polo clubs, you can just bring your horse on. So you're no longer paying $150 per chucker. And you know, if I wanted to play, you know, two times a week or something like that, and you think about that, it's almost like 22. Now that we're talking about $2,400 a month, then you're thinking about, wow, that's three times like Sonny's board. 
So now I'm just paying for board for the horse, maybe some shoeing, you know, some vets here and there. And I've brought that cost down a lot. Now, the next thing that I had to do was I had to find stables close enough to the city because I like the city. I, I like living in the city life. I mean, I like the split between the country and the city. Don't get me wrong. I love the country, the quiet. It's nice to get away, but I'm, I'm a city. I'm a city boy through and through. But I think, you know, to have the best of both worlds, I had to figure that out because I wasn't going to drive 70 or 50 miles to go see my horse. I was going to go to 20 minutes, 25 minutes max is what I'm going to do. And so I found stables and things like that that were really close. The Bay Area is great. I'm sure Michigan is very similar. You probably have a lot of land and things like that where you can pasture horses in a place that, you know, is, is good for them, like, you know, uh, mentally and things like that. Because I, I really do think about that when I think about my horses. Can I pasture? Is she having a good time? Is, you know, psychologically, is she all there? Right. Because, you know, you don't want to keep yeah. her cooped up in a building or anything like that. So thought about that. And so I got her at a place and she's now about 25 to 30 minutes. If there's traffic, sometimes it's like a little bit under an hour, but that's, that's just city life. Um, but, uh, but you know, on a, on a good day, it's about 25 to 30 minutes. So now I figured out the financial equation and I figured out the logistics equation. And so I know that was a long statement about how to your question to get there. But when you think about it, like those are the things that you have to do when you think about polo. Like, how do I get into it? Like, how one, how, how the hell do I get there is like number one. And then second is, how do I continue to make this work and be a consistent athlete? Because the routine is huge. Because like, I could play for, you know, two weeks and then lay off of it for like four or five months or something like that and try and come back to it. But honestly, like most of us who, you know, are athletic or in the gym or ride horses or whatever, we know that you lose it. Like not all the way, but you're not going to be, you're not always going to be at your best. So that's kind of where things are. Sorry, that was long. No, please don't, don't apologize. Uh, what's it called? I really appreciate how you broke down each part of those steps. And I think it's really important for other riders, especially people who want to go pursue like a sport that is more expensive to know that there are those possibilities out there that it's not just like this one road that you get to travel down, which I think we often get tricked into by professionals in the industry. They're like, you can only ride with me and that's going to be your ticket to getting better. And that's not right. true. There's always a way to be innovative or to look for another solution. So I really appreciate you saying that. And I think it's going to resonate with anyone who has, whether they're riding for just pleasure or if they are riding to get to like a high level goal, I think it's really important to know that like, there's not just like, you know, you find your one North star and this is it. Like, I think it's important to know that there are so many steps and that they can be equally varied and you and unique to all of us. So I really appreciate that breakdown. And you did talk a little bit about Sunny and I do want to talk about her too, but I was wondering before you met Sunny, like what were some of the horses that influenced your journey? Were there any horses? Like maybe it was just like you met Sunny and she was, you said she was pretty much it and you guys bonded really quickly, but I'm just curious. And then I want to hear all about Sunny, of course, cause she's amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. So the, the, the horse that I really learned to play polo on and I loved was a horse uh, named Grace and Grace uh, was, I believe was thoroughbred and uh, Francesca at, at South Bay owned Grace. So the story goes like basically my first clinic, I got on this horse because at the time I was, I was really into Olympic weightlifting. I was at my max weightlifting weight, which was about 220 pounds, just solid muscle. 
I've since now slim so playing pole. I've since slimmed down about 30, almost 40 pounds from that weight so that I could play the game more spec, uh, more effectively. Now, when I got on there, Francesco was like, okay, this is a big guy. I need a big horse for him. So they got, they put me on a horse aptly named tank tank, a beautiful horse. I get on tank and tank takes off with me. Look at split. It's a polo pony. That's what, that's what they're designed to do. So he takes off with me and I'm just sitting there and I'm just like, Oh good God, this is it. First lesson. I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm dead. First lesson. And it didn't happen. I'm still obviously still alive and kicking, but uh, I'm just riding this horse, galloping away or whatever. And I hear Francesca like in the back, like pull, like rain back, rain back, put your heels down, put your heels down, like all these things. So we finally get this horse stopped. She's like, okay, I'm gonna give you like a little bit of an easier horse. So she had this horse named Grace. Grace was this beautiful, beautiful mare. And Bay, Bay Mare, and was just so patient and so, yeah, that's it. She was just patient. She was a great horse. I uh, played my first like tournament on Grace, and yeah, I- I'll never forget like kind of what she what she done. And I think it was by the end of the season I was going to play her in one of the first like really big tournaments. Uh, the Linfoot tournament is what we call it here. And I was like, oh, I, I saw that she was no longer in the lineup. She died the night before. She'd call it. And um, yeah, that was, that was, I mean, it wasn't terribly hard for me. It was sad, obviously. I know, I know it happens, but I was like, oh man, like, you know, she'd given so much and she was so patient. So it was really just unfortunate. So, but she was an amazing mare. That was a horse, I think, that, you know, did it for me. It's something about mares. Like I have two geldings right now, but like I grew up riding mares and there's just something really special about them. They like Mm. are always like super sensitive and they're just really wonderful at taking care of their riders. And it's like, once you have like, once you've built the partnership, they always show up. Like there's never a day where they don't show up or they just like phone it in or anything like that. They're always like on top of everything, which I'm so appreciative of. And Grace sounds like she was an amazing partner to have. She was. Yeah. So yeah, she was, she was a decent horse for sure. Yeah. And then, all right, now you have to tell all of us about Sunny. I'm sure many people who follow you on Instagram are just as obsessed with her as I am. She is an absolutely lovely horse. Yeah, she's pretty funny. So Sunny is, um, Sunny is definitely a horse with a, She's definitely got an outsized personality and she is spunky and sassy and uh, good in pictures. We've, I was, we've learned uh, she's a, she's a great horse, um, but it wasn't always that way. So I kind of alluded to it in the, in the story before that, you know, Sunny uh, played uh, professional polo um, in Southern California at the empire polo club um, or the, the El Dorado polo club. And that's actually, people would know that we like where Coachella is held. So Coachella is actually held on polo fields. And when Coachella is not taking place, people play polo on there. And that's where Sunny played. And so um, when a polo pony is kind of at the end or kind of still competitive, but, you know, they don't want to run them anymore too much in tournaments and, you know, they want to sell them or turn them over. Um, they'll sell them obviously to, to amateur players. And so then Sunny was sold. Um, and so this, you know, the, the owner of Sunny 
work with Sonny, but just had a lot of trouble with this mayor. And so essentially, eventually, uh, Sonny was kind of put into uh, a situation where she was put across the street, basically from the polo field in just a normal stable. And she's being exercised, but she was not really kind of living out sort of her, her vocation, which was to be a polo pony. And so when I was trying to find all these rides, I'd encountered um, a trainer by the name of Susan Bosserman. And she was offering through her, her school rides far more, you know, I think far fairer price than what you could find in the Bay Area. So I would drive 70 miles, maybe three to four times a week to work with Susan and her horses. And she's like, would you like to work with Sunny? It's absolutely, I'd love to work with Sunny. And so we started working with Sunny and the, I remember the first thing Sunny tried to do was like buck and kick and run me against walls. And she just like, wasn't having it. And all, not all of that is actually gone. Sunny still does a lot of that, but I think it really takes a lot of a patient rider to say, okay, like, I really want to do this. I really want to play polo. She is a made polo horse. And when she plays the game, she plays it well. And I, I tease her cause I call her like the, the Allen Iverson of horses. Like she hates to practice, but she loves when she gets on the field, she loves to actually play and she'll open up and play well and stuff like that. But she's got all of these different, you know, needs, if you will, uh, to, to, to how she'll play and, you know, when she'll play. And so uh, just kind of being patient with her. And so she and I play really well together. And I know that when I was linking up with her, there were just a lot of, you know, just, I mean, and everybody was really well-intentioned. I, I don't think this was, you know, malicious or nefarious or clandestine or anything like that, but everybody was like, well, you're a new, you're a new player, Dale. You play aggressive, you play hard. There's only so far you can go on that horse, which is true. It depends on the type of polo game that you want to play. Do I want a thoroughbred so I could just open up and play as fast as I can? That's definitely the American style of polo but there are all types of styles of polo. I mean, it varies in England, India, Africa, South America, the United States, everybody plays a little different. And in the US, what is, I think the commonly held or known way to play polo is like people like thoroughbreds, they like to go fast, they like to hit up the field. And Sunny's more of like, she's like this Criollo, Mexican Criollo and quarter horse mix, which means that like, She's thick. She can defend well. She rides off well, which means like slamming into other horses really well. Um, she is, if we had a breakaway, which means we get the ball and we're ahead of everybody and they're chasing us to get that ball. She's actually pretty quick, um, but she's not designed for racing speeds. Um, but she is designed for, I think, a player who, like me, I think I'm a hard hitter. I can hit the ball really hard. I'm a pretty big guy. So I can knock it up and, and stuff like that. So playing the back is kind of like, you know, what me and Sonny can do. And I kind of like that game. Like, you know, it's not always about running and being the star. And I, I, I like being the supportive kind of person in any organization or anything that I sit in, like at my job, I do data engineering and stuff like that. I'm, you know, I'm the guy behind the scenes kind of just making things work. And I, I like that. Um, you're essential all the time. So you can build a little fiefdom and nobody can never let you go. No, I'm kidding. Um, but um, but beyond that, um, I, I, I like that. And I've, I've learned a lot with her and, you know, to have this, you know, just this mare that's really sturdy and consistent and her being the first horse I've ever owned. I think it's great. 
I think it's great to like learn to like how you deal with your farrier, how you deal with a vet, how you learn, how you train a horse to, to, to load into a trailer, how you learn to drive with the horse, how you learn to, you know, all these different components that make polo work. Sunny, in my opinion, has been the ideal horse because she's so patient and she is just so kind of, you know, kind of go with the flow that sometimes it's not just the game. Sometimes it's just getting a horse trained and getting to the game and saying, you know what? We were able to train. She's a solid, well-built horse. We made it to the field. That's it. Because like for me, like at the end of the day, a lot of times that's the win. You know, I have been able to wake up in the middle of the city, get to the horse, transport her, get there on time, tack her up and do all of that by myself. Because in, in the sport of polo, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of white glove service. Um, so, you know, there's a there are lots of people who will jump off their horse and hand it to someone else and say, here you go. Or there are lots of people who say, I need my horse warmed up, you know, and in my head, I I come from a I'm a really kind of I come from a really DIY nature. And I think that eventually, I mean, one day, I mean, I mean, we all like a little white glove service. And I think, you know, eventually I may get there. But, you know, until I get there, I like to know personally everything that's going on. Like, how does that work? How do you tackle horse? How do you, how do you know, how do you know the length of the martingale? How do you know what bit to use? Like all of those components, because, you know, I don't ever want to get caught up where it's like, I depended on all these people for so long and never were able, was able to do it. I mean, if somebody needs to roll up their sleeves and do it themselves, I really am all about that. And so, I mean, I there are things that I just never knew about that I've learned with this particular horse and in this particular experience. And so Sunny, because by virtue of Sunny and just her patience and her attitude and things like that, I've been able to do that. I've been able to learn that. And so she's been a fantastic horse um, just beyond being a great polo pony and being an amazing athlete. Um, and she's just so patient. I mean, we've like an Instagram, we've taken so many pictures and we've got a few things lined up with a photographer. We've got a collaboration with some like skincare products and stuff, and she's going to be in those pictures. And the thing is like, you know, she is so patient with like photographers and traveling and, and doing that. So she, she, she's becoming more than just a, you know, a little bit of a polo pony. I, I, I do lie. I, well, I don't know if it's a lie, but I do often exaggerate and say, I think Sunny is probably the most photographed polo pony in the world at this point. And, um, or it's, you know, people know us. Like if there was a polo mayor that people was like, what's, oh, Sunny, we know Sunny, but yeah. could you name another polo horse? A lot of people can't. So, um, so she's so patient in that regard too. And um, she's great with children. I, I, my nephew rides her. And I've started just a lot of people who are like, hey, can I come out for a ride? And she's just a great horse to kind of meander along a trail with. And she's a great trail riding horse. She's a great polo pony. And, and for me, she's just a great teacher overall. Oh. Yeah. No, I love that. And I love how you touched on the fact that she's become like something bigger than polo. Right. And like how horses always give us that platform to kind of extend beyond ourselves and I also loved right. how you shared about, I mean, I would also love some white glove service, like someone just like tacking up my horse and stuff. But I think, I don't know if it's just me and like, I come from a family of in immigrants, but like, for me, it's like, I want to know everything because I can't be caught off guard and not know what it is in the moment. So right. I love that you touched on the fact that like, that is a really important part of your routine. And I think that's what really separates a lot of like, 
the riders who are putting their horses welfare first and the ones who are taking it for granted and I think that's what kind of like puts people off sports equestrian sports in general is when we are taking our horses for granted so I love that you are always putting Sunny first and her needs I think that's a really special and unique relationship to have all right so I am curious what is some advice you'd have for riders and specifically BIPOC riders about how they can get involved in the sport and then also how they could potentially build out whether it's a hobby or even in a career within the sport like do you have any advice for them or anything that you would suggest for anyone who's kind of like trying to work their way into the sport no absolutely I think that going into the sport I think people going in need to be realistic with some of the costs but I think that beyond that they need to understand that those costs aren't they aren't fixed. I mean, there's a way to hack that, right? So the great thing about being in the industry that I've been in and sort of the career that I've done is this idea of being able to engineer new ways in, of doing things. And so we always think that there's got to be a better, more efficient, more effective way of doing things. And, and you, you touched to the point that traditionally, a lot of people are saying, stick with me and this is how you do it. This is the way that things are done. This is the way that things are done. And I agree, there, there are some things traditionally that are probably more effective and ideal, but I don't think that that stands for everything across the board. And I don't think that, <clears throat> I don't think that, I just don't think that all of that, you know, that, that holds. Like there are some things, obviously most of us honor a lot of traditions and we don't want to break away from them. But there are some sort of practices and things like that that can always be revisited and things that can be changed. And so, you know, I think hacking that stuff is important. I think everything that I had first thing in polo was like all secondhand, like secondhand polo saddles that I found on eBay, secondhand tack, you know, all those things. Um, and so that's how kind of how I got the, the equipment to start playing. And then, of course, um, just articulating uh, your opinion, like your ideas and letting people know where you want to go, I think is really important. And I've been blessed in the sense that, like, there have been so many people who have helped me um, in polo really get my foot in the door. But I think you have to show sort of that zest to want to play the game um that zest that you want to be there and that nothing really is going to stop you uh no matter what and i think once you kind of show that fervor i think people get get behind you and they're like okay this this person is the truth right and you have to go beyond that initial excitement so everybody initially is excited you know it's the first first time it's like spring we're excited oh I'm in love. I'm excited. And, you know, those, that, that honeymoon period will eventually wear off. And I think the difference is, is can you still stay consistent and can you still stay passionate after the honeymoon period? And I think that's when people really start to see, okay, this, this person isn't just, you know, enamored with, you know, the, the, they're not looking to the honeymoon period. They're, they're actually in it to, to win it. And I think that wanting to go into the sport, Obviously, if I'd started a lot earlier, I'd have been a lot 
further along. So, I mean, get started early. That would be one recommendation. But you need the money to do that. So I don't know. So I don't know what comes first, the chicken or the egg. Um, but I think people need to be patient with themselves too and understand that this is, you have to play for the long game, whatever that may be for certain people. Now, I was talking to one guy before and he was like this older gentleman who really great guy. And he was saying, yeah, I've got to pay for horses and do all this because I'm in my mid sixties. He's like, I don't have a lot of time. He's like, but for you, you've got a lot of time. And if you think about it, we've got great players like Mimo Garcita, um, who was also an immigrant, a Mexican immigrant, in fact. Um, and is probably, we consider him the Michael Jordan of polo. Uh, he is well into his sixties and still playing high goal, high quality polo, which tells you that, which tells a person in their thirties, like me, early to, to mid thirties, Oh, I've got another good 30 years to get to a, a place where I could still keep playing. So I think that everyone needs to be patient with themselves and understand that it's going to take time. It's going to build, take time to build up to getting to a certain point. And I think that if you look at the game and if you look at one's journey in a series of steps or pieces, then it makes it, it becomes easier. Right. So in my case, I looked at, okay, I wanted to learn how to play the game. Okay, perfect. I kind of wanted to know the rules, be able to play at speed, play safely. Got it. And then from that point, I was like, okay, well, I want to stay in the game, but I got to get the cost down and the logistics going. Okay, well, I got the horse. I got the cheapest diesel I could find. I got the really old sort of ramshackle trailer that I, I renovated myself. And now I can effectively move my, like, effectively move my horse from the stable where I want to keep her close to me so I can ride and practice every day down to the polo fields where we do what we do and back. And I think that once you start to look at it, the steps of like, okay, well, I need the infrastructure. And that was like a huge thing. And that was all 2020 and almost part of 2021 has been for me. It's like, how do I build that lasting infrastructure so I can play for the next two to three years? So the truck that I have, like, you know, there's a few things I still have to get it overhauled and stuff. But now once that truck is done, I have this truck that I can grow with. I can start pulling maybe three horses. And if I want to do that, I can do that for, you know, when I'm looking four or five years into the future, perfect. So now I can use that truck to pull horses in the future. And then, you know, I have a horse named Sonny and you, I've already said I've got this horse Sonny and, and now, you know, I'll probably have, you know, other horses, but now I know how to take care of Sonny. Now I know how to take care of other horses. And so I'm looking at it in all these different steps about how do I scale what I'm doing and then, you know, just make it, you know, cost effective and logistically reasonable. Um, and so all of those different components. So I would think somebody getting into the sport, they need to do that. And never to be upset or intimidated by if they're coming in and they're traditionally not from the horse world, the, the, the amount of feeling maybe that they lack something. Doesn't matter. Everybody, like everybody's on a different chapter. That's what I like to say. Cause I used to work out, I work out a lot. And so people come to the gym and like, I want to be like you. And I'm like, okay. I was like, that's great. But I was like, we're on a different chapter of the book. And so I started my chapter one and maybe I'm chapter 17 and you're chapter one and that's okay. So it's the same thing with like, and I say, like, but if you just stay consistent with it, one day you'll be at chapter 17 as well, but sorry, I already would be at chapters, you know, 34, but no, <laughs> um, You'll always be playing catch up with me, bro. <laughs> uh, 
but beyond that, um, it's the same thing with, with in, in, in this world. And I've learned that the longer you stay and the person who's there the longest and the most dedicated, it, it, it can't pan out for you. I mean, it's not always the case. There, there are cases where people try and keep trying and it, they're, even their best is not good enough because it just unfortunately doesn't work like, but I think I hope for the vast majority of us that if we do try to stay the course, if you will, then those, those things do happen um, either through hard work or serendipity or whatever it is you want to call it, that, that, that does happen. So I would say for somebody going in there, like, don't be deterred, you know, by the perception of the ivory towers, go in there and know that you're supposed to be there, go in there and make yourself comfortable there. I mean, no one's told me ever outright that you don't belong here. Nobody has told me outright, you know, or made me feel uncomfortable. And I think a lot of times, maybe sometimes it's the voices in our own heads that maybe say, oh, okay, this is, maybe this is it for me, or maybe people don't like me and things like that. And I've, I've never encountered that. And I was just say, kind of as a black man, um, a lot of times, I guess, in my, in my life, like growing up in a city like Oakland, where I knew the majority of the city, well, at the time I was growing, a lot of gentrifications happened here. But as a time when I was born, I think the city was close to maybe like 50 to 60% black. And that's dropped down to maybe 30 or something like that. And so, but when I was growing up, I knew that things like weren't always in Oakland. So I was always leaving the space that was always primarily black and going to spaces that were mixed or, or spaces where I was the only black person, whether that be in terms of like education or career and things like that. So moving from the spaces that I was like more, you know, what I grew up in and moving to spaces where I was now the only person that looked like me. I just haven't had the issue with like that. Like, I just kind of like, okay, this, it is what it is. You know what I mean? And so I think that going in there and, and being comfortable with, you know, being the only person sometimes you, you just have to do that. And I think that that is good because I think when you do that, you, you also are representing a lot of other things. I think you go in there changing minds, right? So there are certain things that maybe there are certain stances that I obviously take and maybe people who never would have met me will now think twice about it. You know, maybe on a polo field, if a black man never came to the polo field, people wouldn't think about a lot of the movements that are going on in the country right now, but maybe just by me being there, that changes like, Oh yeah, we know this person. Oh, wow. This person, this may affect this person. And, you know, people have, have, you know, ventured to ask me how I felt about some of these issues. And I appreciate that. And um, so whatever we can do to be a teacher just beyond the sports that we play um, is, is awesome. And I think that ultimately though, too, is just as uh, first and foremost, I always want to just be seen as a great player, like a, a, a fair player, a kind player, what we call a gentleman player. And then of course, then of course I'm a black player. And so I try to, I try to kind of change those. Cause like every time I talk to people, they're like, Oh, you're a black polo player. I'm like, yeah, that's great. But, and that's awesome. I mean, that does, that, that does, it's a huge statement, but also on the field, I don't want to just be known as, you know, the black polo player. Uh, I would like to be known as, you know, a really good polo player. So I try to put the heart of my work that I do with Sonny 
and the love that I kind of show and the positivity that I try to show at center of what we do. And then I think that people will attach those associations with love and, you know, kind of kindness and all those kinds of, and humor are at the center of Dale and Sonny's relationship. And oh, Dale also just so happens to be a black guy. And maybe that changes a lot of different perceptions about how people see black men. And, you know, I was having a conversation with someone and they were basically saying that it's amazing to see, you know, you're kind of this like buff black dude, but like you're in these like really beautiful settings, like treating this horse really kindly. And this is not the perception that we're always sold. And she was like, you know, you would be like, I don't know, a, a boxer or something like that. And we would think, we would think like you would have this really, I don't get me wrong. I do have, probably have like boxer energy, but I'm not a boxer at all. <laughs> but you know, so it's, it's kind of those things. So I think that to, 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 to come full circle and to, to answer your question about what it means to be a person of color going onto the field, it's a lot of those things. It's, it's trying to figure out how you need to stay in there effectively. So I think I covered that. And then I think it is what you also are going to represent, but then also in your mind philosophically, what you want to put f- first and foremost. Do you want to play the game and be a really good player and be seen as that? And then... Of course, people will associate that with who you are. And then uh, obviously you set the tone and the pace for anyone who comes and follows up behind you. And so I kind of, I kind of want to do that, right? So that's kind of my philosophy. And that's the kind of the, I know it was a long one, but that's kind of the, the words of, you know, wisdom I have for, for people coming up. And then just to ride and ride as much as you can. Become a good, be, become a good rider. So yeah. No, I, first of all, that whole, your whole answer was really wonderful. And I really don't care. You could keep talking for forever and I'd be totally okay with it because I'm always happy to soak up other people's wisdom. But I really love how you spoke about the fact that it does take some time to number one, build momentum. And that once you build momentum, it's something that gives back to you. But the initial push is always just kind of like, not fake it till you make it, but fake it till you become it or fake it until you feel it, which I really appreciate. And then I also love, um, it's something that Esperanza and I touched on when I recorded with her, where you talked about how showing up in equestrian spaces where people of color and black riders aren't necessarily the norm. It's that you're not just showing up for yourself, you're showing up and hopefully cutting a path for others to follow. And that by showing up, you're creating this space. And you're also like, I mean, I don't know for you, but for me personally, the 2016 election was really tough. I think it was for a lot of people, especially like communities of color. And it was even tougher because I saw a lot of my friends shrinking back from the things that they love doing. And it's kind of like what you just shared with all of us makes me think of how in that moment, I was like, I can't shrink back because if I don't show up, no one else is going to. And I can't show up in anger either. I have to show up with like the idea that I do belong here. I do deserve this and I'm going to continue moving forward. So I really appreciate you sharing that because I think that's something that a lot of writers of color um, would probably feel, especially in their heart. And especially if there are people who have been in the sport for decades if not even longer than that so I'm super appreciative of you sharing that that's all I'm trying to say (laughs) oh yeah no absolutely absolutely all right so I want to know 
what are you looking, you touched on it a little bit, but what are you looking to accomplish as a horse, horseman? Sorry, I'm always interviewing women. That's <laughs> fine. Are, no, it's fine. No, what are you looking for? Force of habit. <laughs> yeah. What are you looking to accomplish as a horseman within your lifetime? I know that's a super oh, wow. broad goal, but like, is there something that like comes yeah, to Yeah, I mean, I'm, absolutely. I think, you know, we all in this life are trying to manifest the visions of, of the life that we hope to have. And I think for me, ultimately, I would love in the end, like end game for Dale is probably like some land outside of a city or metro. Maybe it's, you know, parts of New Jersey outside of New York, or maybe it's parts of the Bay Area. Um, out, you know, obviously outside of Oakland or San Francisco where I can own some land and have enough for like maybe three horses or so and, uh, playing polo at maybe just like two goals. I mean, you can go up to 10 goals, but like, I mean, you know, I'd love to play two to three goals. Um, and Could I just want explain three- to explain to, so like, I'm not a polo player and I know some of the right. players are, could you explain what a goal is or like are you talking yeah. about like goals within the sport so or... it's like handicaps right so okay. like we have a handicap in in polo right so yeah. um most of us can start off like a negative one and then you can move through the negatives or you can go zero one two three all the way to 10 goals and that's all kind of arbitrary because 10 goals is like there are people who are amazing and th- it's just the rubric is like very rigid and old and probably needs some refinement but to most players in the world are, are, are one and under, right? So, so there are one goal. And that, and that is based on a number of things like horsemanship, teamwork, you know, rules and things like that. And, and then people kind of assess like, oh, you're a one goal. Uh, you're probably a two goal. Uh, you know, you play in enough tournaments where you get kind of that assessment. So I think that ultimately I'd love to play like two to three goal polo. I'm not, I'm not chasing a tingle. Um, I, I, I like, I love the variety of my life. I mean, I travel um, both domestic and international. I've got a fun career. So I would love to continue to keep polo in addition to the work that I do. And so um, maybe three horses and being like two to three goals is probably the best I'm going to get living that life and not becoming a professional polo player. And I've accepted that because that's like what I want. Like, you know, I, I was telling somebody earlier today, do you know, um, I was talking to Abriana. Yeah, yeah, I love Abriana. Yeah, I was talking yeah to, she's amazing. Yeah, I was talking to her today. Yeah, I was talking to Abriana. And I was like, she said something about traffic. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, I was like, I love this city. You can catch me at your next rooftop party. Like, I am that guy. Like, I love to party. I love to be out there in, in like, different spaces. So, you know, as much as I love to play polo, I mean, I love, like I said, I love a good rooftop party, too. So um, so I've got to find that, that balance. And all things in life, we must balance, right? And so um, so two to three horses with maybe like a, a small ranch outside in, in the country, you know, would be perfect for me. Um, and then just playing two to go three goal polo and just kind of letting that happen and, and playing with different clubs around the world. And um, those are really just like, those are ultimately my, my, my horse goals and dreams, you know, to kind of have this thing as a part of my life to have to, to be able to live with it. And, and I think living with it and why I kind of want this branch is because it all goes back to cost and logistics for me. It goes back to, I no longer want to keep, you know, my horses. I love the stable she's at now, but I'm thinking, man, I could save so much money if I was just putting this money into a mortgage and the horse was just staying with me. So, you know, in my mind, I'm always, the wheels are always turning about 
how do I bring my effective costs down to make this work? And ultimately, that's the next sort of grand step, if you will. Um, so that in a sense, you know, you're not paying thousands of dollars to play the game. You know, once you've got the truck and all that, because my truck's almost paid, once you have all that stuff, all that infrastructure solid, and you've got like a piece of land you live on because that's your house, you're paying your mortgage, it's not a big deal. Then you're like, okay, well, I'm just playing the game. Now I'm just like, this is just a kind of a part of my life. And so that's that's ultimately what I want. I want it to be in, in such a way that it's not intru- too intrusive on life and the other experiences that I, I want to have in this life. And then, of course, being able to give, you know, some horses, some good homes and stuff like that would obviously be be pretty fun. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, those are those are ultimately ultimately my goals. Um, and, you know, with polo, it's funny because, you know, it's one of those pay to play sports. Like, so, for example, we have Patrons and or Patron. And the thing is, is like, if I really wanted to, I could pay one hundred thousand dollars and play at the highest goals. And just like you could hire out a team and then you could play there. It would be like, it would be akin to like me playing in like, I don't know, the the NBA and then just hiring like LeBron James and a bunch of people. And then like me not like just standing there on the field as they like, I mean, on the the court as they bounce back and forth. And that's what you see. It's actually, it's actually fascinating that like these really rich people can play. And then you just see all these really good players playing around them and doing stuff for them. And they'll knock the ball out to them. They'll tap it. Like I did it. And then, you know, and so um it's it's fascinating so i mean maybe i'm rich enough one day to just go pay some dudes to to hit the ball around for me and no offense those are some people's livelihoods no no offense to the like the professionals who do that right but i mean when you do think about it it is kind of (laughs) funny and again for that that diy spirit for me i was like i I couldn't bring myself to do it <laughs> I, was like, I mean, I've played with professionals like because you can't hire out a pro in some games which are really fun. They're really fast and stuff like that. But I, I'm, I'm a baby steps kind of guy. I would love to just like pick up with some friends and then yeah, I would love to have like a community of people that grow together in polo and get better and be able to do that regularly. And maybe I could foster that in some way or some capacity. So that would be a lot of fun if I could just like, hey, I have like you need eight people maybe i have like seven other friends that you know want to come out and we just kind of play every you know every few days or something like that i think that would be awesome and that's actually how the polo culture is fostered in argentina i mean they just play out there in the pampas and it's just like a bunch of people like oh we got some horses we got a ball we're gonna go out there and it's like some guys over here uh shooting hoops um like in the, the the basketball court right behind this house and you know i i would love for it to just be as a pickup and easy as that so yeah that's those are my goals those are some good goals to have and i also love that you touched on the idea of having a balanced life that's not something i think many equestrians and i will include myself in that are familiar with in general so uh, i really love mm. that you touched on that because i don't think it needs to be like when I was younger, I was like, it needs to be all or nothing. Like I'm at the barn or I'm not. And I think it's really important to also acknowledge the fact that like you can't have a life and see your friends and be like normal and not like just be perpetually covered in like, you know, hay and like horse sweat. So yeah, I really oh, yeah. love that you touched on that. Yeah. 
yeah sunny lives on a winery too which also like helps so like you I'm know it's like oh say, yeah like, every time you post something about the scenery over there i'm like what is this dreamscape happening right now it looks so nice it looks like yeah no idyllic. i found it, I, yeah, no, it's it's crazy. It's like 600 acres. There's only like four other borders there right now. So like we basically have the place to ourselves. And I actually found this place after taking like oyster shots. I was like doing some oyster shots. I was like, okay, I got to fly sunny a place to live close to the city. And I found I'm like, oh, okay, here it is. So like, <laughs> and then that's how I like, you know, so just kind of forest gumping through life. That's what I told people. Like, it just like things happen. It's like, oh, shoot. Like, yeah, okay, that worked out. Like that didn't actually, not too bad. no well I think a lot of that has to do like after listening to you talk I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that you are prepared for stuff like because it's like luck is generally when like preparation meets opportunity I don't think like it just randomly shows up at least in my experience like stuff doesn't randomly show up when I'm slacking off like stuff shows up when I'm like actually putting pieces together so I'm sure that is part of the equation as well (laughs) Yeah, a lot of stress in that equation that I keep out of like the, the story right now. So, but yeah, it's like I'm stressed out, you know. That's that's the preparation part. <laughs> yeah. It wouldn't be horses if there wasn't just like a tiny bit of anxiety and stress mixed into all of it. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, kind of like piggybacking off of that question, I'm curious. This is another like broad question, so feel free to like siphon it down to whatever you feel like answering. Um, I'm curious, what kind of sustainable changes would you like to see within the horse world? And it doesn't have to be specific to polo. It could just be something super general or. uh, Absolutely. I would love to see the incorporation of greater, better technology into polo. I mean, into polo, not even to polo, to the horse world, excuse me. Um, I think that like there are things in my opinion that still, as, as my good friend from, the UK Oliver, who I play polo with, I post him from time to time. He says it's quite village, meaning that it's it's you know there are things that's just kind of like webs, like something as basic as websites, mm-hmm. um, things as like selling horses and, and 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 digitizing records, and you know just things like that are would just be would make a world of difference, and and not just digitizing rec- rec- records for you know your your best horses, like for all horses, like I mean what you're telling me that there's no way that we can actually stamp this stuff and like kind of be able to like a car, you know, when you do something with your car, like you, you, you check all the stuff when you buy a new car, like you don't have a piece of paperwork when I buy a horse and like, Oh, okay. Like you, this person owned it. It came from this. These are the, the shots it received. Like that to me is like wild. Like I'm like, okay, this is, yeah. You guys are still treating this. Like this is like the year 1000. Okay. Gotcha. So yeah. Um, so I definitely love to see greater incorporation of technology. Um, I think that that's going to make the lives of horses and, and their owners just worlds better. And I'll give you an example. So I, I go to New York City frequently. My mom slides from there. And so I was uh, riding in the Bronx and I talked to someone who's there's this old polo pony named Nacho. And the, the instructor saying, don't pull, pull hard on his mouth. I'm like, pull hard on his mouth. Yes, because the polo player that used to play Nacho used to pull so hard on its mouth that now it only responds to being hard on the mouth. And I said, well, where'd you find the horse? And she said, in a kill pen. And she says, but, you know, by the time it gets to the kill pen, all the paperwork's torn up and you don't know anything about it. 
And I'm like, how's that even possible? You know, and so, or, you know, when people tell you, oh, this is a beautiful Argentine pony, but the horse actually really came from like Arkansas. And so my thing is like, how do you, how do you reduce, you know, instances of fraud? How do you, you know, reduce instances of horses being mistreated and things like that? It's like, you can kind of start to probably build a database, an effective one around the lives of horses. And I think that would make things world easier, a world easier for like vets and all, you know, it's just, I think that that would probably be a good step in the right direction. If you can do it for a bunch of cars, I mean, I imagine you could probably do it for horses too. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. No, I, yep. now I'm just like, why don't we like, now I'm just having like a whole brain spiral where I'm like, why don't we do that? Yeah. Yeah. I think that would be super not sorry. Now I'm just like, I'm thinking of all the possibilities where this could be. No, like, the, the, yeah. There are, there are, there are a world of possibilities. I mean, even if like, if, even if you were to look at like, because I work in data, right. And so you start to see things like horse, horse deaths and like horse racing and things like that. Or, you know, there's a, there's an, a bunch of colic going on at one barn, but down the street, it's not going on at all. Like that, you know, the, there are all these data points that exist that people could probably start to use and start to be able to reference to at least come up with answers instead of just like, oh, they all died. Oh, they broke their leg. Like, you know, it's just yeah. like, and that's what I see. I like, I'm reading, I'm like, how careless. Like, you know, if we lose, like, I mean, if you see an airliner, I'm sorry, I fly all the time. If an airliner goes down, oh, I mean, they're all over it. Like, we got a black box. We know what happened. All, you know, we can, we, you know, just the minute details. But, you know, there are a lot of things where people are like, oh, broke its leg. And I'm like, well, 40 horses broke their leg. They're like, that's like, that's something like, what's going on? Right. And so if you can't keep those records and things like that, maybe, maybe they came from the same owner. Maybe they came from like, we don't know anything, right? So there's a lot of possibilities that you could do. And I think that would improve the lives of, of the horses. I think it would improve the lives of the owners and um, it would just make things a lot more efficient and effective. And I don't, yeah. Yeah, I think more than efficient and effective, I feel like that would take care of a lot of the issues that we have with like interacting with people who aren't necessarily like you find out after the fact that they're not trustworthy or that like you know, they're yeah so I feel like that would eliminate so much heartache that I feel like exists within the sport especially for like that's a big reason as to like why people leave the sport too like it regardless of your discipline is that they feel like betrayed by whoever they were working with or they feel lied to so I feel like that's now I'm just like how does one make this happen so <laughs> i'm just having like a little brain spiral about it but no well, i really it's it's a, it's a little bit in the works on this side i was kind of alluding to a project that i'm working with that deals with like horses and blockchains a little bit yeah and so when you think about if you think about like if you apply a horse to a blockchain and you start to be able to move those horses through and i've already created like a prototype of how somebody could sell a horse and then you could actually have this data and then because you're in a blockchain, that data is immutable. So once you start to sell that horse through this chain, that information can never be deleted or manipulated. Okay. And so you can actually move that data. And so I actually kind of came up with this idea. Um, I call it the, um, yeah, the equine chain. Okay. So instead of the blockchain. 
And this idea is basically you you can actually start to track the, the, the life of this horse within the blockchain. And then basically what ends up happening is it can reduce instances of fraud because now me as the buyer, I have to go to you, the seller, but then that information has to be passed to me. And then obviously you're not only buying the horse, but you're buying the information set that comes with it. And so to your point, yes, how do you, you know, when people are, you know, when people are deceived and then, you know, that kind of stuff, like how do you reduce instances of fraud and deception? And also how do you, yeah. And so the, you can understand that over the life of the horse. So it's, it's just actually a prototype. I, I have it working in Ethereum. <laughs> so I mean, I'm ready kinda... for you to launch it, whatever, because I feel like not only, sorry, now I'm just like, I feel like this would solve all of the horse world's problems, but like, I feel like it would also, I'm trying to think of the word, but it would also make horses maybe a, a lot more accessible to people. Like, I don't, I think that veil would be lifted because I do love the traditions that surround a lot of what we do, but I also think they don't serve us. So I'm very, very intrigued by this idea. This totally has my brain yeah. going like a million miles a minute now. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And when you think about it, to your point, I, I, I agree that the tradition should be upheld. I, I'm not, I'm not all about, you know, I'm not a burn everything down kind of guy at all. Uh, but I am kind of like, let's get in here. Let's see what works. Let's see what doesn't. And, you know, we can keep working the way that things are, but how do we, how do we make it better? You know what I mean? So even like, you know, like those old timey ships where they like still have sails and propellers, like we could even do that with horses. Like, I mean, that made no sense. But, uh, you know, if that made people feel better to keep the sails on the boat and you got <laughs> propellers or paddle wheels on the same, like, let's d- at least do that. Like, you know, we can like Frankenstein it. And then, you know, when people are finally like, oh, you know, I feel comfortable not using the sails. You can chop down the masts and you can move, <laughs> you can move on. So, um, yeah. So, I mean. <laughs> no, thank you for sharing that. That is something I've never thought of before. And I'm sure many people have never thought of that before too. Thanks for sharing. Of course. Of course. We're excited to uh, start putting it out there. I've, I've got to do a few extra things, but I'm planning on writing a white paper about it and actually putting it out there and then just trying to like, you know, sell the idea. And then ideally maybe you could move the information between vets initially and yeah. then vets could actually be able to pass information easier. And then from that point, maybe you would go into like maybe horse trading and horse sales and things like that to make the, the business more transparent. Um, and then just kind of go from that point. So we'll see. We'll yeah, see. Absolutely. No, that's super exciting. All right. Now I'm just going to have to like calm my thought process down <laughs> for a little bit. No, but, no worries. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So we are going to start to wrap up, but I am, okay. I'm wondering like, so how can people connect with you? What's the best way to connect with you? Are there any, like, any ways, any websites, articles, social media? I'll make sure I include it all in our show notes. Yeah, no, absolutely. I want to start, you know, my phone number is five. No, I'm just playing. Um, <laughs> but um, no, Instagram is always like my main sort of medium of kind of putting things out there. And then within there, I have a guide of different articles that I was like either featured and included in um and then of course there's more to come which i'm really excited about that um but beyond that uh, yeah no i think instagram i'm actually usually pretty pretty accessible like when people like try to dm me 
um i usually answer pretty pretty rapidly um so yeah just inside all quarantine so i'm always excited when i see somebody like hey i'm like oh my goodness humans yes i understand that feeling very much so i'll Mm -hmm. make sure i include your instagram profile and link it so people can connect with you on there and i'm gonna launch into some more light-hearted questions that i like to wrap up the show with so we'll start with the first one and that is can you describe i know you have sunny but can you describe your dream horse oh man it would be like a second sunny but just a little taller okay (laughs) So and for reference, like cr- how tall is Sunny? 15 hands. Okay. So I want something maybe like more like 15, like, like, I don't know, 15, two, you know, nothing too, not, like not too much taller, just, you know, just slightly taller than Sunny. And then, um, but I want one just as like stocky, just as, um, you know, yeah, just as stocky and sort of muscular like she is. So that's like Mexican Criollo. And like quarter horse mix, I think would be perfect. I just want longer legs because I do want a little bit more speed sometimes. No, that's fair. Do you have a dream color though? No, I'm just curious. Oh yeah, like a blue roan would be beautiful. Ooh. I love, yeah, I'd love a blue roan. So that'd be fun. I like the roans. Awesome. Yeah, they're fun. And then um, would you want to ride on the beach or in the mountains if you have to choose between the two? Which one would you choose? Uh, definitely the beach. Beach. Have you ever yeah. ridden on a Do beach? I have, her... I have. Sunny actually lives right by a beach, and we've ridden on that beach. Oh, that must have been fun. That's yeah. my that's my dream, but like I have yet to make it happen. I'm hoping like one year I can get out to like one of our coastlines and take. I don't think a Katie's would be into it, but my other horse Mio would. I think he'd okay. love it. Yeah. <laughs> I. I... I, I hate to show off, but where I live with Sunny, there are mountains. So we've gone mountains and then we could actually walk down. To the beach. So we, we have, we have both. <laughs> but the the ideal is, world. <laughs> yeah. The, the beach is way better. Fair enough. Fair enough. Also now I'm just jealous that you have both the mountains and the beach within access. Like right on the coast. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Yeah. So the next question I have is what is your favorite piece of polo equipment? Oh man, my boots, of course. <laughs> boots are bad. I, w- I have a pair of Western polo boots. I just wear all over. I don't even, I let them never take them off. Like I always have, my, I always, always have my riding boots on. Like either because they're cowboy, like they're made in a cowboy style and I, I never take them off. I wear them everywhere I go, literally. Oh, I love that. All right. And then if you could, I know I'm not going to necessarily completely understand this answer that you give us, but if you could build your dream polo team, who would be on it? Oh, man. It would be me. Uh, it would be like my best bud, Ollie. Um, it would probably be. There's this young woman. I think her name's Claire English. She's a really good player. And then I need a fourth. Um, there's this guy named Sippy Cipriano. I'd probably play with him. So that'd be like a fun team. Awesome. And then where would be like, aside from playing polo where you're at right now and the facilities that you go to, where would be like 
one place in the world like if you had no limitations on money transportation anything like that that you would love to play with Sunny at oh so my dream like the dream like if money was no option if I were like Jeff Bezos uh, I would actually at Half Moon Bay where I keep Sunny which is this beautiful coastal village um, just south of here uh, I would build a polo field there there's tons of open land that's for sale and the climate is beautiful like today it was like 70 degrees and views of the Pacific Ocean and stuff like that it's close to the city I would actually build my own polo field in Half Moon Bay and play right here right here at home oh I love that all right and then these are our last two questions what like if your writing journey had a theme song what would it be oh man (laughs) um I'm not going to use any of the explicit songs because I listen, I listen to a <laughs> lot of bad music. Um, but my, my really good friend in New York, she put me on a song called Solid Gold by P-A-N-U. Um, so Solid Gold. That. Probably, yeah, that would be a, I think that would be a good song. Um, but I, I have theme songs for everything, like when I'm training, you know, like. Well, now you we have were, like, to share it with us. What is your training theme song? So my training theme song is called Mother Africa by Troy Boy. And he is like, he's all like house music and stuff like that. Solid Gold is more like poppy, but upbeat house type music. Um, I'm, I'm a bit of a house hit. So um, yeah, so either that or like, just like some gritty gutter, you know, hip hop music. So, <laughs> but we won't, we won't delve into that. Um, so yeah. No, I love it. All right. And then the last question I have for you is what is your favorite quote or a quote that you consistently draw strength from? Yeah, the quote that I draw strength from is where your focus goes, your energy flows. Love that. That's a good one. All right. Well, those are all my questions. Thank you for indulging me with all of them. And then also for joining me on this episode. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. No, thank you for for doing this and putting this on. And of course, the work that you're doing there at Detroit Horsepower, this is is absolutely amazing um, to have this opportunity to, to work. You know, obviously you're doing the work, but just to kind of do that and be asked to help you do this for, for other people, for people who are aspiring to do it and yeah, it's, it's just great. Yeah, we'll have to have you back for another episode. I have many questions about polo now, so I'm gonna have to like get them we all on a whole, list. <laughs> yeah, we have a whole polo polo episode. Like it'll be fine. You just ask all the polo questions, and I'm, I'm very tempted to put that together. I'll have to like put that out on my Instagram and be like, "What polo questions do you have?" Maybe for season three. <laughs> all right, sounds good. For tuning in for this episode of the Every Writer Has a Story podcast. And I want to thank Dale for being such an amazing guest. In listening to Dale, I hope you feel encouraged and empowered to pursue your goals in a way that feels best and most honest to you. That if you do have larger goals, 
that now maybe you have some tools and strategies about how to break them down and create a plan that can give you some quantifiable results. And if you want to get in touch with Dale and see all of his and Sunny's amazing adventures, his Instagram handle has been included in the show notes. Thanks again for tuning in for this episode of the Every Rider Has a Story podcast. And if you want to keep up with all future episodes, make sure you hit the subscribe button. I'll see you all in the next one.